Good morning. We are involved in a study this summer in the book of James. And James, in many ways, is the New Testament version of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And I'm struck as we're turning to this passage this morning of verse 19 down through verse 27, just how incredibly relevant it is to our everyday living. Like so much of the wisdom found in God's word is, of course. But also what stands out in these verses that we're going to be exploring together this morning is the impact of God's word, particularly the internalized God's word upon your life, my life. As you're turning to James chapter 1, in fact, the lead-in verse is what we covered our last time together in James. In verse 18, we are told of his, speaking of God, own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And there the word of God is spoken of medically. It's as if the seed has been implanted, you see, and now we have uh, embryonic development occurring. But then he moves from the medical to the agricultural in his analogy that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, what God is doing at this point is saying, whether I want to use a medical analogy or an agricultural analogy, I want you to take very seriously how God's word functions like a seed implanted. And that's why now, with that as our background, I begin reading in verse 19, down through verse 27, and over and over there is this emphasis upon how God's word transforms the way we live. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, there it is now, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word. And not here is only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, But a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
In other words, he wants you to be working outwardly what he has already done inwardly, implanting his word in our hearts. And we're going to see how practical this is and how all this works itself out as we, as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our fathers, we're coming before you in these various services. We want to keep everything God-centered, not pastor-centered for certain, and not even person-centered, God-centered in allowing your truth to speak to our lives. And that might mean changes. We're not here to simply audit a class. We're here to live out a life. Quorum Deo before you. And so, Father, we're asking that in a very powerful way, your word intrude, invade, implant itself within our thought processes, within our souls, transforming us from the inside out. When we look for wisdom, there is tremendous wisdom when we explore your word. And we see how truth relates to life. And we want truth to continuously relate to life. And not just simply encapsulating all this on a Sunday morning with no bearing upon a Monday night. So, Father, wanting a transformational approach to things, we come before you now. And as we come before you, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. I've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. I thought about that when I came across this story from Ansley Mueller, a man who loves Jesus as Lord and Savior, a farmer from Pleasant Plains, Ohio. It was 1977, and I had lost half my crop. It was a bad, bad year. It was so wet that I, I couldn't get half of it harvested, and it didn't develop. So at the end of the year, in October, I'd walk through the fields and try to pick up a bushel here and a piece there. And then I saw standing by itself something extraordinary, unusual-looking soybean plant. One plant. I walked over, and I was shocked by its size and its appearance, and I went and carefully picked off the pods. There were 202 pods, and I opened them, and I counted out 503 soybeans. I took them I took them home, and I kept them in a pan all winter, and they dried out. Wanting to put that year behind me, the next spring, these pods, they just seemed so special to me, 
And so in 1978, with these 503 soybeans, I planted them in a little plot behind my house. And when October came, I harvested 32 pounds. I dried them out in the winter. And in 1979, I took those 32 pounds, planted them on one acre. And when October came, I harvested And I had 2,409 pounds. And I planted them on 68 acres, which was all the land that I had available. And in October of that year, I harvested 2,100 bushels. All from an unusual soybean that stood out in a very bad year. I've sometimes been struck with how God's word finds a way of implanting itself in what can be a very bad year. Where everything seems to be going wrong and a person is wondering, where is God in the midst of all this? But then when the uh, push comes to shove, they realize that God is sovereign. Circumstances are not. God is sovereign. We are not. And when we come to the realization that we're sinners and that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that recognition that comes from God's revelation, his word, becomes so implanted in the soil of the soul that it begins to produce a harvest and begins to change the very landscape of our lives. What I want to do with you now as we continue in this series of James is to explore with you now three significant areas of our lives that God's implanted word equips us to be. The first is found in verse 19 down through verse 21. Number one, God's implanted word equips you, equips me, equips us to be emotionally disciplined in our relationships. That even the emotions are affected by God's sovereign word framing the way in which we live our lives. Now, when he writes, know this, at the beginning of verse 19, James assumes that you and I have worked through verses 1 through 18, doesn't he? We've worked through what God's word has to say about the trials of life, number one. That God's word has worked and guided us through the temptations of life, number two. And now we have to address the truths of life, number three. And so he again utilizing, as I noted a few minutes ago, a combination of medical and agricultural terminology to highlight the idea of God's word being like that of a seed, in verse 18, of his, speaking of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We now know this. But furthermore, he says, my beloved brothers, in verse 18. So he is obviously now speaking of those who have put their faith and trust exclusively in Jesus for salvation. There is no other means of salvation 
except putting faith and trust in Christ alone, his finished work on the cross. But what he is about to deliver now for you and for me is something that does not come natural. What he's about to do is to lay out for us three significant disciplines for the believer's life that can transform your relationships, your marriage, your relationship at work with those who may work for you, even with those who seem to stand against you. And I want to draw out these three disciplines and explore them intensely together with you. Notice he begins with this first of the three. Let every person be quick to hear. Now, I've got to put that in context with the other disciplines. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. We are in verse 19. Notice that he says quick to hear. Now, By saying quick to hear, he's telling you and me that we have to develop the discipline of listening. We could be of good hearing, yet hard of listening. Notice that there is one quick, followed by two slows. Be quick to hear, followed by slow to speak, slow to anger. Notice, furthermore, there is a progression here. There's a linkage here. The person who is slow to hear and quick to speak will typically be quick to anger. So notice that he begins with the idea of slowness, not slow of thought, but... He emphasizes the idea here that before comes the slow to speak, slow to anger, you are quick to hear, and here now, what is listed initially, not subsequently, is the quickness issue of hearing. It is the only discipline here that involves quickness. It is a responsibility, not merely an option at this point. Now, when you and I are quick to hear, what does that do for you and what does that do for me? It begins to counter wrong assumptions. I'm drawing that person out. It begins to counter wrong interpretations that may have developed pertaining to what that person has said or done. Furthermore, it counters wrong conclusions or premature conclusions about what that person intends to do. Now, what James is doing at this point, he starts with the quick before he gets any further here and reminds you and me there is one, as the proverbial writer would have put it, in chapter 12, verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. James seems to be saturated with the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. 
but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And in chapter 17, verse 27 and 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man, you see, of understanding. There is one quick followed by two slows. It's listed initially, not subsequently. It's the only discipline involving quickness. It's a responsibility, not merely an option. And furthermore, because it's a command, that tells you and tells me it does not come naturally. Even after you're born again, don't assume you can just simply say, well, this is the way God made me. No, that's a born-once approach. A shoot-from-the-hip is a born-once approach. But taking now and processing inwardly what you are to express outwardly requires the discipline of truth applied to life. And that's why we nod our heads when Dr. Paul Tournier wrote, Listen to all the conversations of our world, those between nations as well as those between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. Each one speaks primarily in order to set forth his own ideas, in order to justify himself, in order to enhance himself and to accuse others. Exceedingly few exchanges of viewpoints manifest a real desire to understand the other person. Now, God understands you. God understands me. But God is the one who is so prerogative to be the first speaker. In the beginning, God. And God speaks this world into being, you see. And so there is precedent where God takes initiative and speaks. But now we being the created rather than the creators, we have to develop as recipients of truth the capacity to listen. And so being quick to hear, there is only one quick in this sequence and two slows. The quick involves, because it's listed initially, setting everything up subsequently. As it's the only discipline involving quickness, it's a responsibility, not an option, because this does not come natural, but it does counter wrong assumptions. It does counter wrong interpretations. It does counter wrong conclusions, and it's saturated by proverbial teachings. But now once you and I have established that as the first link in the chain, you then move to the next link. Not only are we called to be quick to hear, but now the slowness kicks in, slow to speak. Again, not slow of thought, but slow to speak. Notice with me that slow to speak is positioned between the quick to hear and the slow to anger. It is, in fact, the second in the chain. 
if it's the first discipline requiring slowness, then in my conversational approach under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to deal with the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the hows, you see, of life as I minister to others. Being slow to speak is a challenge to the person who is highly expressive. It's a challenge to the person that is highly impulsive. It's a challenge to the person that's highly verbal. It's challenging to the person that is highly engaged in expressing opinions before others can get their word in. But then you and I are struck by more of the writings of Proverbs. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Or when you're rushing to get a word in and say something to a person, and it's meant to be done privately, but you've chosen the option of doing it publicly, you then find these words from Proverbs 25, beginning with verse 8, like apples of gold and settings of silver is the word spoken in right circumstances. So who should I really be speaking to? What is it that I really need to be saying? Where is it that I should say this? And when is it best to say it? Why do I even need to say it? And if so, how should this be phrased? And all this is consistent with living the life under the Lordship of Christ, where the implanted word is now producing a verbal harvest. There's a, there's a tomb out in England. It reads, beneath this stone, a lump of clay lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Now, I don't know what her life was all about, but I'm sure there was relational chaos associated with it. But when you and I realize that it is God's word that holds our tongue, and I am now addressing the who, what, where, when, why, and how matters of life under his lordship, and I am now following the disciplines, the emotional disciplines that have been laid out for me due to the implanting of God's word within me, that there is one quick followed by two slows, and the quick starts things off, but it deals with hearing, and the slow which follows and put in the middle pertains to speaking, Then I'm ready then for the third, be slow to anger. And again, it seems as though James knows the book of Proverbs well. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, we're told in chapter 14, verse 29. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In chapter 15, verse 18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. In chapter 16, verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. 
And we ask ourselves then, well, why is this so? And why does he leave slow to anger last in this threefold sequence of disciplines? And the answer now is in verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The implanted word of God produces righteousness. But if I am allowing something else to compete with the implanted word of God, it produces unrighteousness. And now I've got to look at the conversational landscape of the history of my life and ask, where did I produce a harvest of unrighteousness? When in fact God's word implanted righteousness within me. Now this has incredible bearing upon the way you parent. If you are single... This has tremendous way in which you interact with people as you're perhaps considering eventually who you would marry. The workplace, the dynamics of family life, the expansiveness of all the circles of relationships we find ourselves in. So now, as he continues utilizing the agricultural analogy at this point, he's used both medical and agricultural to describe the matter of the seed. He says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The word put away has to do with putting away, the taking off of a particular type of clothing that was worn by people in an agricultural community after they had been working the land. You're all sweaty. Clings to you. You've got to find a way to remove it. Now, what he is saying here, by nature, because of our sinful nature, this stuff tends to cling to us. It's got to be removed. Notice that there has to be both a removal as well as a reception, found in verse 21. Therefore, put away, remove all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, what? The implanted word. Now, that's the agricultural analogy And then he fills in the rest powerfully by stating which is able to save your souls. And you say, because you're a thinking person. But Gary, it seems as though he's already referring to us in these verses as believers. Know this, my beloved brother, speaking of brothers in Christ Jesus. Then why does he speak of the idea able to save your souls? What I want you to understand is that when you see the word save in the Bible... It pertains to different matters of salvation. There is a past, there is a present, and there is a future type of saving. The past pertains to the cross, where you are saved from the penalty of sin. There is justification. But there is a save that pertains to the present, where you are being saved from the power of sin. The biblical term, sanctification. But thirdly, you will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. When you're with the Lord forever. That pertains to what's known as glorification. So you've got to get the umbrella terminology here to understand fully the depth by which James is spelling out and developing the thinking that you and I need to be able to apply to life. Robert E. Lee was a believer. He loved Jesus. He'd been asked, in fact, to head up the forces of the Union Armies of the North. But due to his allegiance to his native Virginia, 
he chose to become a general of the South. Union soldier hatred towards the Confederacy was lying wounded at Gettysburg. At the close of the battle, Lee rode by, and the soldier, and he was faint and losing blood, raised his hand, shook his fist at Lee, and shouted out, God bless the Union. Lee heard him. General Lee got off his horse, went toward him. The soldier tells the rest of the story. I thought the general meant to kill me. But as he came up, he looked at me with such a sad expression upon his face that all fear left me. And looking right into my eyes, he said, My son, by God's grace, I hope you will be, you will be well soon. If I live a thousand years, I will never forget what the general said to me. What we want to do is in the midst of the battles of life to have sanctified words, to be able to make statements that have lasting impressions upon another person's soul, forcing them to reevaluate where they stand in relationship to God. And for that to occur, God's implanted words got to equip you and me to be emotionally disciplined. Even that realm has to be under the lordship of Christ with regard to our relationships by being quick to hear, followed by two slows, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. Three disciplines. Now, once you and I begin to process this and we realize that this is not natural, this is supernatural, this is God working in me, this is God working through me, this is God's fingerprint upon the relationships of my life, I'm ready for the second aspect of implanting. The number two God's implanted word equips you, equips me, equips us to be scripturally consistent in our behavior. In verse 22, you and I are called to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Notice that it does not say, but be doers of the word and not hearers, period. In other words, we've got to process inwardly and then execute outwardly. The word doer here has to do with that which is continual. In other words, a keep on, keeping on type of living. You are now experiencing input in your devotional life so that there will be output in your everyday life. And so there has to be balance between input and output, and you're continuously allowing more and more word to be implanted within so you are producing a harvest from without. Be doers of the word and not hearers, you see, only deceiving yourselves. Now, the one who's the hearer only, there's an interesting word here in the original language, and it carries with the idea of somebody who is simply an auditor. When, during my days in college and beyond, there would be certain students that would be part of the class, but they were simply auditing the class. They were not taking the tests, and they were not getting credit, but they were present. 
Now, it's very possible that in three services of a sizable congregation, it is very possible that there are a number of people that look the part, fit in. There's the appearance, but they are simply merely auditing Christianity. They find that interesting, that God's word is so relevant to life. But they are not participating in the application of truth to everyday living. Now, God is calling that person out. He's saying, you've got to begin to address the whole question. Are you simply auditing my course of living? Or are you truly working out what is meant to be worked within? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, notice he goes on. He's given a command in verse 22. You and I are called to be a doer, not a hearer only, though I am to be a hearer. And you draw the hearer line back to verse 19, let every person be quick to hear. So now I'm quick to hear God's word, and that has to do with the vertical realm, but also I am quick to hear, and that pertains to the horizontal realm, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So now I'm working this stuff out, deceiving yourselves. And then he uses an analogy. Do you see it in verse 23? But if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And then using the analogy of the mirror, he's saying that God's word is like that of a mirror. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So God's word functions like like the mirror you see of your life. Now, maybe when your children were small, they remember this, this line, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? Now, my mirror and I have something in common. When I look into my mirror, we both crack up. I'm sure you don't have that problem. But you see, the mirror that God has laid before you and me to gaze into exposes reality. It can sometimes create a sense of uncomfort, discomfort. But what do you do when you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see? You try to do something about it. There's an adjustment that's typically made. Now, what God's Word is doing at this point is he's forcing you and me to make adjustments spiritually. So I take a hard look at these three disciplines, the one quick followed by the two slows. And I now look at the reflection and ask, is this honoring to God? Emotionally disciplined in our relationships? Am I furthermore scripturally consistent in my behavior because I am a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Otherwise, I'm only deceiving myself, certainly not deceiving God. But then he adds in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's God's word, the law of liberty, and perseveres, 
being no hearers who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed, you see, in his doing. My mind merely goes back to Psalm 119. Maybe you find yourself doing the same when you read that kind of thing. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 14. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And it ties exactly with what's being said here, John Bunyan. John Bunyan, in his classic Pilgrim's Progress, describes Amira. Christiana and Mercy are examining it. And John Bunyan, who creates a tremendous word picture for you and for me, tells us, The man who continues looking into the mirror of God's word sees in it things far more wonderful than his own face. He sees not only his filthy garments, not only the spots and the stains of his life, he sees in it Jesus, the Christ of the thorn-crowned brow, the Christ of the cross, his Savior, whose blood cleanses him from all sin. And then I find myself stirred at that point when I consider God's word like a mirror and I'm pondering the reflection and does there need to be an adjustment? There's a self-awareness that comes with a God-awareness revealed in his word. And Joshua understood that when God had said that this book of the law should not depart from your mouth, you shall meditate on it day and night, so you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success, Joshua 1.8. And so now in your, in your personal disciplines, you create this linkage of chain. One quick followed by two slows. And with these disciplines comes the scriptural consistency where you move, you see, from input to output. And you are using God's word like this mirror. And you see the reflection and then you begin to make the adjustments necessary to live honestly before God. And this leads us now to the third area of the implanted word. That thirdly, God's implanted word equips you and equips me, us, to be socially responsible in our culture. And you say, well, Gary, how does all this fit together? Look carefully now at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, and he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, there's the second time that word occurs here in this section, deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. And there's a lot of unbelievers that would probably shout amen if an amen could come from an unbeliever's lips. But then a believer's got something in a secular world that the seculars might depend upon government to enforce. But you see, the believer knows that God's word is the ultimate enforcer. 
Religion that is pure in verse 27 and undefiled before God the Father is this. Mark it. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Mark it. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice the two twos there. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, number one. To keep oneself unstained from the world, number two. And now he's laying out the objectives for you and me to have high impact in a secular culture that lacks wisdom. And you and I know God's word produces wisdom. Now we begin to ponder then the social responsibility of the believer and we consider how William Wilberforce was influenced by God's word and the tremendous writings of John Newton to impact England and beyond in the abolishment of slavery. We think in current society of how Franklin Graham can sit before a secularist in the give and the take of an interview on television and talk about the worldwide influence of Samaritan's Purse that builds a platform for sharing the good news that his father would proclaim so effectively to so many. But you and I look at this, and we can see now how by also being socially responsible, we can build a platform for evangelistic impact. Chuck Colson understood that. John Huffman was a gifted pastor in the Pittsburgh area before heading out to California. And he recalls a time when Colson had just come to saving faith. Now, Colson, of course, had been in prison. He'd been part of the Watergate issues during the Nixon administration. And he himself says that he was skeptical. I had seen too many who, under pressure, had faked faith in Jesus to lessen responsibility. So in a television interview, he said, I put the tough question to Colson, rigorously asking, quote, Chuck, as one of the toughest operatives in the Nixon White House, now claiming Christian conversion, how can you convince me and many other skeptics that you really have committed your life to Jesus and that you are not just talking a religious game? Colson tilts his head. Colson furrows his brow. He thinks for a minute. And in this, one of his first in-depth interviews after being released from prison said, quote, John, there's no way I can convince you and perhaps even myself right now. What I suggest is that in 10 years from now, you check me out and see what I'm doing then. Now, that was in 1975. Huffman became close friends with Coulson. Coulson established prison fellowship. Colson reached out in such a powerful way and there were countless people coming to saving faith because he took his social responsibilities as a, as a platform to then proclaiming evangelistic truths. An emotionally disciplined man, a scripturally consistent man, a 
a socially responsible man who put Jesus Christ first, you see, in his life. It's been said that one can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. And when God seeds your soul in the soil of your soul with the truth of his word, there is such a harvest, and it makes such a difference in the lives of so many. But it starts with one. And it starts with you. You ready? Let's stand together. We see here the outworking of that which was done inwardly. We see how your word relates to modern life how it all fits together and gets the attention of the secularist, the secular unbeliever as well as the religious unbeliever. Because there's authenticity here. There's credibility. There's discipline. There's application. It's real reality. So, Father, help us now to harness what's found in these verses, all which is the harvest of the implanted word so it can make a difference in the way in which we live our lives for your glory. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.